Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here as we are every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 Pacific to talk with you about the markets, the economy, and hopefully provide you some insights and explanations about all the stuff that's going on so you can make some good informed decisions to help your own investment program. First of all, uh, let's do the proverbial data dump. Uh, yesterday, the Dow closed. Well, the market was just about unchanged across the board. The Dow was off just a tad. It was at 26,671. That was down 62 points. S&P 32.24. That's within two points of a new all-time high. The uh, NASDAQ at 10,503. Gold settled at $1,809 an ounce. Silver at 1932 an ounce. Crude at 40.59 a barrel, 10-year Treasury at 0.62%, and soft white wheat was last quoted at 5.85 a bushel. And because we did taxes uh, this week, I'd like to thank the top 1% for having paid 40% of those income taxes. So anytime you hear people moaning about how much they pay in tax, this is one time you don't want to be one of the one percenters, it would seem. So not a lot of... Uh, Economic reports out next week. Uh, we're going to have a lot more earnings, however. Wednesday, we do get the existing home sales report. Thursday, uh, again, another uh, jobless claims report. And then Friday, uh, a report on new home sales. Now, I want to uh, go over briefly uh, <laughs> some of the trading this week. It was kind of unusual in certain regards. Well, let's go back to a week ago, Friday. You know, last Friday, I think it was started what they call the mean reversion action. Banks, energy, and small caps uh, started retaking a bit of the tech market domination, and that could be the start of an overall rebalancing of the marketplace. The transition from the high growth shares into these lacking, lagging cyclicals. Now, Monday, a company called Tesla, you may have heard of it. It's the car with the big, long extension cord coming out the back end. Anyway, uh, Tesla's market value at one point during the day on Monday reached $321 billion. That was according to Factset. And for that moment, made it the 10th largest U.S. stock by market value, even ahead of Procter & Gamble. Now, for the year, the stock is up about 300%. And in earlier this month, Tesla was uh, topped Toyota to become the largest automaker in the world by market value. Okay. Uh, the stock is up more than 55% this month, and they handily beat delivery estimates in the second quarter. Um, analysts uh, polled by Factset had been uh, expecting 72,000 deliveries, and they came up with 90,600. Just Monday, the stock traded within a 320-point range. Now, we can call that volatile. I don't care who you are, that's volatile. And it closed yesterday at uh, 1,500. Now, the NASDAQ 100, basically, that's the one we use when we're talking about the NASDAQ. It's made up of the 100 largest non-financial companies in the composite. Well, it set three new highs this week, and it briefly broke above 11,000. Again, it closed at 10,005. Um and 11,000 means 11,000. It's nothing other than a big number, but it sounds pretty impressive. Now, Tuesday, we're moving right along. Investors took some 
profits out of the high-flying textures and started adding exposure to some of the more cyclical names, that mean reversion stuff I said that started a week ago Friday. Now, there are still stacks of cash being held in hedge funds, macro funds, mutual funds, and personal funds all around the country. It's at record level. So um, there's plenty of money out there if indeed people get so motivated to uh, put it to work in the market. Now, Wednesday, we had a little virus vaccination news positive and a blowout quarter from Goldman Sachs. Thursday, Friday, well, they were both pretty much sideways. But Ralph Acampora, sorry, Ralph. Ralph is uh, probably, uh, they call him the godfather of technical analysis, you know, charts and graphs, guys. And, uh, you know, and it's true. It is. That's how you keep churning the market. I mean, in a good way, from those that are overpriced to those that are underpriced and they seek their mean value. So the financials, the industrials, the energy shares are all consolidating above levels of support. And now they're starting finally to move to the upside, part of this rotation I'm talking about. Now, as wild as the NASDAQ surge and outperformance might seem to many folks, it really hasn't piled up anywhere close to the same amount of money for investors that it had in the late 90s. For example, in the five and 10 year period through 1999, in other words, 90 to 95 and then 90 to 99, the NASDAQ had gained 440% and 800% respectively. Not a bad decade. Now, the comparable gains over these last five and 10 years are up 111% and up 380%. Now, not chopped liver by any stretch, for sure. But it's not quite the same as it was in the 90s. Um, and another distinction between today's outside uh, NASDAQ contribution to the overall market's claim uh, and one that, well, pretty much culminated around uh, the year 2000 is that today we have a notable difference. Moving into these mega cap top names, the you know, the FANG stocks, and Facebook, Amazon, Apple, uh, Google, Netflix, all those guys. Well, that's now considered a defensive instinct. Investors are gravitating toward the steadiness and predictability of the growth of these companies rather than crossing the fingers on the blue, high, blue sky hopes of the dot-comers uh, with the amazing growth rates and innovative disruptions yet to come. So these companies, first of all, have substance to them. Uh, they're not, uh, someday my prince will come. And uh, so there is really significant value. And when you get an uncertain market, folks like to say, well, I'd like to get something for my money. I'd like to see it go up in value. And, uh, you know, the stocks that consistently put out good earnings, own their market, if you will, dominators in their marketplace. These are the kinds of companies that are going to maintain their positions regardless of what happens in the overall market for some relatively short period of time. So that's why you don't sell them. Okay. Now, a few uh, notes about the economy, some of the reports that we saw this week. I thought this was interesting. General Mills, Campbell Soup, and Conagra and others say they're putting out food as fast as they can, but they still can't replenish inventories. As of July 5th, 10% of packaged foods, 
beverages, and household goods were still out of stock. Yet another example of this lockdown and how it's affecting our overall economy. Now, Tuesday's uh, Consumer Price Index report, which is inflation at our level, showed that after three months of deflation, consumer prices uh, moved up in June. That headline rate rose by six-tenths of a percent. That's the biggest move in eight years. Uh, The core rate's up 0.2%. And again, uh, even with the drastic downward impact on business activity and prices from this virus, Consumer prices are still up six-tenths of a percent in the past year, though that's a slowdown from the upward trend inflation prior to the virus. And core prices remain up 1.2% versus a year ago. So, yeah, there's inflation. Well, more importantly, there's not deflation. And that's not a good thing. We don't want uh, deflation. Now, of course, we don't want runaway inflation either. But 1.2%, that's not exactly getting away from us. Now, the Fed is pumping money into the economy through all kinds of measures, including large-scale asset purchases and loans to firms. You know, it's something else, too. Banks right now have about $2.5 trillion in excess reserves today. That means that that's above and beyond what they need to make loans and operate and what have you. So there's plenty of money out there for loans and and business development. We just have to get going again. So that also suggests that um, as loan demands go up, you won't see necessarily a commensurate rise in inflation because, again, there's wads of cash out there, plus, uh, again, the banks with these reserves. So much more to go. The Fed's been pumping money into the economy through all kinds of ways, and uh, the banks have the $2.5 trillion in excess reserves, and the government has put out uh, in the last few months $3 trillion in additional fiscal stimulus. So there's been fears, and you know you can see that, that all this unprecedented stimulus could stoke inflation. But we've got 33 million folks still in unemployment. We've got an economy that's just chugging along. So I think uh, any uh, significant growth in inflation is likely to be uh, pretty minimal for the uh, foreseeable future. A good thing came out this week. Small Business Optimism Index up 6.2%. That's from the National Federation of Independent Business. It said that small business owners anticipate a short recession and increased sales as the economy reopens. It's the second month in a row that small business optimism has increased. Industrial production of 5.4%, better than expected, and it continued its recovery, uh, posting that's the largest monthly gain since 1959. Now, here's, here's something that needs to be kept in mind. That improvement is from a very low baseline. This is part of what I call my market theory of relativity. You know, it's, is it better than or is it worse than? Now, we know that industrial production or earnings, stock earnings, corporate earnings are down, and we know why. It's not a surprise. So uh, the analysts and whomever are saying, okay, based on that, we expect the number to be this. So even though the number may be lower than what had been anticipated, say, at the first of the year, now in light of developments, you put out this data and say, gosh, that was better than we expected. So you get a positive response. And so when you get better than expected earnings, even though they may be lower than what they, you would have thought they were earlier in the year, 
you're going to see the stock re- respond uh, typically positively. Now, initial unemployment claims declined for the 15th straight week. Now, it's still 1.3 million folks filed, but it was down 10,000 from the week before. And the continuing claims, which typically lag the initial claims by a week, well, they were down as well. So the rebound in the labor market is continuing. Another good uh, kind of indication of underlying strength, home builder sentiment jumped up a bunch in July. That's according to the National Association of Home Builders. Uh, This is now back to where it was in March before all this stuff hit the economy. Uh, The uh, National Association of Home Builders chairman said builders are seeing strong traffic and lots of interest in new construction as existing home inventory remains lean. Boy, I'll tell you what. And here's another related note. Construction of U.S. homes jumped 17 percent in May as some states reopened. No names, please. Even after a second straight month of increases, construction activity is still 4 percent below last year's pace. Oh, and here's a big one. The average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage fell to 2.98%. This according to Freddie Mac. That's the lowest in almost 50, five zero years of record keeping. Third straight week in the seventh time this year, seventh time this year, that that home loan have hit new lows. And housing starts largest monthly gain since 2016 in June as the recovery in new construction continued with both single and multi-unit construction showing increases. Uh, Builders are still dealing with headlines which have been hamping a sharper uh, rebound Uh, and while home builders have been classified as essential workers uh, these restrictive regulations still require fewer people per crew dragging out project time. Yeah, well, uh, retail sales, they're up 7.5% in June. Some stores and restaurants reopened. Some of that cash that's floating around out there has been, how many say, re-entered into the economy. And uh, that, uh, let's see, that was retail sales two months ago were down 19% from a year ago. And now, as of a year ago, we're up 1.1%. So the trend is our friend. Now, this is something you need to keep in your mind. There's nothing we can do about it. It is what it is. The second quarter for real GDP will still be much worse, much worse than the first quarter, and probably the steepest drop in real GDP for any quarter since right after World War II or maybe even the Depression. But what matters right now is the path forward, and I think we started down that at a healthy clip. Uh, the GDP data are simply going to be a rehash of things that have already occurred. Uh, it's old news, as it were. So um, I wouldn't make too much out of it other than, ooh, boy, that's not a good number. Uh, and then uh, just continue to move because there's no reason to get hung up on it. And, you know, with all this stuff about, gee, should I be in the market? Should I be out of the market? Uh, What should I do in these circumstances? I'm uncertain. As I've said many times on here, uh, you always have the certainty of uncertainty in the marketplace. You're not ever going to get all the lights being green when you start your market day. It just doesn't go that way. So uh, I think the simple but critical question you all have to ask yourself is this. Why am I investing? What's my motivation? 
I don't want to be hearing about I play the market. I see these kids with the Robin Hood thing. You know, they're buying two and three shares, no commission, and fine. That's playing the market. Um, investing for your retirement or other long-term needs that are quite significant, no. There's no playing here. This is serious business. So why are you investing? I think, well, we believe that first and foremost, you have to have your personal investment goals built around your values. What's important to you? Why, you know, what, in in all kinds of levels, because that's going to affect your timing, it's going to affect the kinds of investments you make, all of that. Are you seeking a particular lifestyle while you're retired? Do you want to leave a legacy for your family or for charity? Uh, I don't know, you got any other goals? Uh, so, you know, these goals are going to determine the primary purpose for your money and how much long-term growth you'll need in order for you to hit those targets. And along with factors like your time horizon, your comfort with volatility, that all goes a long way to determining your asset allocation, which is simply how you mix up your investments with bonds, stocks, cash, mutual funds, whatever. Now, if you require that long-term growth, then it's pretty hard not to. Uh, if you're going to be investing for something beyond a couple years, uh, we believe that owning stocks uh, should likely be a big part of your strategy. But owning stocks isn't easy especially when this record fast bear market jumped up on us you know no matter how experienced or prepared you may have been even the most steely-eyed investors can occasionally succumb to the emotion and sell when they probably shouldn't well when stocks began rallying in late march most didn't believe it would last and reminded me of another march March of 09, when, uh, you know, March 6th is when the uh, market bottomed and uh, back then. And, the, you know, the market started going up from that point forward. And nobody was buying it. It was like, ah, no, no. You know, they were always waiting for the other shoe to drop, a double dip recession. You remember all those silly terms? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, we, you, Especially after the big hit you just took, you're going to be going, well, I'm not so sure. So, what do you do now if you got out or sat on cash simply due to all this extreme negative news and volatility and whatever else stuff is going on out there? Well, no, seeing stocks stage a historic rally may be a tough pill to swallow after you've done that. It can be even harder getting back in as it might mean that you created an error. Why are you investing? Well, and, you know, it, the, the musical question is, well, if you got out uh, or sat on cash, uh, what do you do now? You know, are, are you uh, concerned about the pricing, the timing? Charlie Munger is uh, Warren Buffett's partner, and uh, he said... The value of his Berkshire Hathaway holdings have fallen at least 50% on three different times. And he says that's a natural consequence of an adult life properly lived. So remember that when you're, your shares are down, you're living properly. And he says the long-term reward always carries short-term risk. That's why he has all that money. So... Getting out of stock just because of fluctuation isn't the only problem. When any investor leaves stocks, an asset that increases the likelihood that they'll successfully reach their goals, they simply must have a reentry plan, in our view. 
you know, that second decision, you know, the one decision was getting out. Well, when do you get back in? That's just as important as when you get out. The only way that exiting stocks can benefit investors is if they get in at a lower level than when they left. But in markets, fear and market levels tend to move inversely. In other words, the lower stocks grow, go, excuse me, the more fear rises and the more uh, the chicken factor <laughs> uh, starts entering into your steely-eyed determination. You know, we've seen too many investors bail on the notion that they'll re-enter at lower levels and only to let the pessimism and panic of the time dissuade them from doing that. And so by the time many investors, quote unquote, feel better about reentering, well, the stocks have usually climbed. And so that exit has been, uh, shall we say, a little counterproductive. Now, nothing, nothing about investing is easy. You know, those who remain disciplined throughout the bad market deserve positive acknowledgement for having had the fortitude to do so. Feel free to pat yourself on the back. Those whose emotions got the best of them and moved out of the markets, well, needn't keep despairing. Rather than wasting time and emotion on what's behind you, what's already happened, focus instead on those goals we were talking about based on your values. Use them to either create a strategy or to tighten one up that you have. Now, along with this longer-term investment, I guess, idea that I'm putting forth, I found a study from the Secure Retirement Institute. They found that almost 49, they interviewed 1,400 non-retired households who did have savings, retired savings accounts. They said that almost 49% of those folks reported experiencing a reduction in income either because of a job loss, a decrease in hours, and or a pay cut. Now, and those households are now more likely to access the money that they do have in their retirement plans. That is not a good plan. So, to offset the loss in income, though, once again, reality rearing its ugly head, the greatest number of Americans said they would make CARES withdrawals from their IRAs. That's the uh, act that was put out earlier this year to change some of the accesses for retirement plans. Um, and the other uh, was followed by those who would make CARES withdrawals from a defined contribution plan, a hardship withdrawal, or even take out a loan. Now, the CARES Act waived the 10% early withdrawal penalty and 20% withholding for virus-related distributions of up to up to $100,000 across all qualified retirement plans in IRAs. Now, read the fine print about that before you go charging down to your retirement plan. There are some uh, qualifiers in terms of uh, to what extent you can waive that withdrawal penalty or withholding. Only households with 12 months or more in emergency savings said they'd opt for a plan loan, that's a loan against their 401k, for example, over a plan withdrawal. Now, not surprisingly, the greatest determinant in whether or not workers access their qualified retirement accounts was how many months of emergency savings they had set aside. So this is part of that asset allocation, right? You have to have some cash in that dude. Now, more than a quarter of U.S. workers, 
26% if you're keeping score, say they only have emergency savings to cover less than one month of expenses, and half the folks, that's 48%, reported having only enough to cover three months' expenses or less. Um, the research director at the Secure Research Institute, excuse me, Retirement Institute says, and I'm quoting, emergency savings represents the first line of defense for households experiencing financial shock, such as major unexpected expect excuse me major unexpected expenses or the loss of a job a lot of which is affecting folks all around the country right now so in theory he says these savings will be tapped before touching any long-term savings including funds and retirement savings accounts so again if you have the three to six months of living expenses in your uh, in money market or cds or something you can liquidate without it affecting the overall value of your uh, big portfolio, if you will, that will protect you from having to make uh, sales to create cash flow in down markets. So that's where you do it. And if you're just starting as investing, first thing you do is build up that emergency fund. Then you start worrying about what do I buy, what do I invest. And and while the majority of households with retirement savings, according to the SRI, have not yet accessed their qualified retirement savings account, the more emergency savings a household has, the less likely they are to raid their retirement accounts. Because another thing is, okay, forget the tax thing. Yeah, okay, so they waive the 10% and the 20% withholding. That's all swell. But that money that was going to be there for your retirement is now out of the picture. And it won't be there to grow, uh, to provide for you further on down the road. And, well, if things go according to plan, being worth a lot more in the future than what it is now. Now, as I just said, reality rears its ugly head. And so when that happens, you don't have much choice. I get it. But please do your very best to try not to... Have to go there in order to uh, uh, keep your home fires burning. So, all right. Now, I want to uh, kind of add on to this with uh, about in the marketplace. You know, it seems like we've talked plenty about how low the interest rates are on bonds and CDs, savings accounts. Um, and so it's quite a, a challenge uh, for what do we do for income? Well, there's a couple ways to look at it. First of all, you know, uh, <laughs> up until I think this last year, we've heard uh, a steady drumbeat for, from economists and pundits about, oh, yeah, the interest rates are going to start rising again any time now. Well, uh, the 10-year Treasury, which is, again, our kind of keystone uh reference point for all bonds in the U.S., um, started uh, the decade uh, just a little bit below 4%, and in July 2016, it got down to 1.3%. But they've been pretty much uh, between uh, 1% and 3.5% for most of the decade, though. And, and rates have been falling since the early 80s. But Scott Major... Um, 
who is at Hong Kong Shanghai Bank Corp's global head of fixed income says lower for longer interest rates are no are a reality no longer a forecast you know, a recent study by fund manager Lord Abbott found that dividends historically have provided more income than bonds on the same invested amount and dividend income and growth is much more reliable and easier to predict and manage than capital appreciation. In other words, you don't know how much something's going to grow, but uh, you can pretty much uh, make some pretty educated guesses about whether or not your dividend uh, will continue or increase or decrease uh, based on past history and current events. So, we're going to take one more break and talk a little bit more about uh, dividends and then uh, an outlook few comments about uh, what you're looking for in the marketplace uh, in the near term. So now there's been some recent um, reductions of dividends uh, by some companies that have been very negatively affected by the virus, but for the most part, uh, companies are continuing to pay, a few even raising those dividends. So if you look at the historical uh, record on dividend payments, I think you'll find that it's pretty dang positive. Now, for a, a two-person retirement, when, when you're creating your strategy for that, you know, I think your one of your main keys is it has to be designed to preserve your purchasing power, your buying power. In other words, a dollar can buy a dollar's worth of stuff 10 years from now as it does now instead of only buying 50 cents worth or something of that nature. So there's only one asset which can demonstrate an income that, well, since at least 1926 when we've got good records, an income that has never failed to increase at a greater rate than the cost of living, the inflation rate, in other words, over all 30-year time horizons. So that would have been 26 to 56, 27 to 57, all of that. I'd say that's pretty consistent. Now, this is known as, referred to as the constantly rising dividends of the great companies in America and the world. Now, at the end of last year, 423 of the S&P companies, that's 84% of the index, paid a dividend. Now, there's a number of companies that elect not to pay dividends just because they're putting all their money, or the vast majority of their money, back into the firm. Uh, And a, a dividend payment is totally up to the company in terms of the amount uh, and the, uh, the frequency. So Howard Silverblatt, he's an index analyst at S&P, he said the dividend payments in the S&P posted their eighth consecutive year of records. At this point, the index already had a 3.3% increase built into this year. Well, there's a couple ways you can find out companies if you're into individual companies or look for funds, ETFs that have these in there. One is called dividend aristocrats. There are 57 stocks in the S&P 500 that have increased their dividend for 25 consecutive years or more. I'd say that's a pretty good record. So it's dividend aristocrats. You can just Google that and they'll show up. The other one is dividend champions. Now, this is a monthly publication tracking all companies listed on the exchanges in the U.S. And in order for a company to be on the list, their annual split-adjusted dividend payout must be consistently increasing. So... You know, the the uh, S&P now has a dividend yield of 
just about 1.9, close to 2%. So if you're looking for current yields of 2.5% or better, you'll have a good margin of safety. Now, all retirement investors in the past always wanted to focus on what was the current yield of stocks versus what was the substantially higher yield 15 years ago of uh, bonds. So, for example, in 2010, the S&P's dividend was 22.65. I'm using time like this to give you a for instance as to how these things appreciate. And 2010 forms a meaningful baseline as the economy and stock market really began their respective recoveries then. The dividend for 2019 was $58. That's two and a half times higher than in 2010. You know, everybody is always talking about the price. In other words, the the level of whichever index. And no one ever talks about the dividend. Well, very few people ever talk about the dividend. At the end of 2010, which it doesn't seem like that long ago, but apparently it is, uh, your 10-year treasury paid you 3.4%. Right now, it's uh, 0.61%. So it, for much of 2019, it had halved, and the dividend from the S&P ticked higher. I think this, not rising stock prices, is the story of the decade just ended. Robust dividend growth in a yield-starved world. Okay? This is, <laughs> you want continuous growth ahead of the rate of inflation. Dividends seem to fit that bill to a great extent. Now, all investments, all investments are made ultimately to produce an income. Could be income now, income later, or income for future generations. Income now, you know, cash flow, your yield, your current yield. Income later is the growth. Income for future uh, generations is the legacy of the assets that you would pass on. The dominant determinant of an investment's capacity to produce an income is its long-term total return. This is how you make the money. Total return. Dividends or interest and or interest plus your growth. Therefore, the price performance of investments is an important factor in their ability to produce an income. But in the real world, that is, with an average of 10,000 people turning 65 every day in this country, the issue is income now and for the next three decades or so. So the point is that uh, whether, or not interest, whether or not interest rates do start to move up, the long-term trend of dividend growth will likely still make the income investor either wish they would have or be glad they had bought good dividend-paying stocks. One other thought uh, about uh, investing is that the default, uh, what would I say, allocation of folks' portfolios uh, probably since the mid-50s has been uh, what they call the 60-40, 60% into stocks, 40% into bonds. Well, J.P. Morgan came out with a note uh, dated June 30th that where they said, and they said that uh, that combination provided an annual compounded rate of return almost 10% from 83 to 2019. But going forward, they see returns on that 60-40 mix dropping to around 3.5% a year over the next decade. And... and it has to do with the uh, difference between the nominal and inflation-protected treasury yields, uh, which has jumped up 
to 1.4 from 105 on May 1st. Now, at the same time, the 10-year yield has, again, ticked down to 0.61. So investors could boost their returns to a little over 4% by adopting a portfolio that's 40% stocks, 20% bonds, and 40% invested in securities with characteristics of both. Those would include things like collateralized loan obligations. Those are basically like Ginny Mays where you have a pool of mortgages that back up the security that you purchase. And then there's commercial mortgage-backed securities, which is somewhat similar in that you're buying an investment backed by a pool of commercial mortgages, strangely enough. Uh, Real estate investment trusts or utility stocks. Now, underneath real estate investment trusts, there are a whole lot of categories. And some are going to be more mm, good than others, uh, depending upon the tactical situation. Like right now, warehouses uh, are... uh, perhaps uh, doing very well. Uh, Apartment buildings, uh, shopping centers, uh, perhaps not as well. But you can create your own diversified portfolio of different real estate companies, uh, depending upon how you make those investments. So, you know, there's a strong temptation. This is uh, courtesy of Bill Murr's head of fixed income research at U.S. Bank. He said there's a strong temptation to reach for yield wherever people can find it. And on a global scale, he goes on, more investors are migrating out of the risk spectrum because they feel they have no choice. So back to the total return. Think of dividends, interest, and growth as the building blocks of an income stream. You can reduce some risk that comes with too heavy a focus on just those companies with high current yields. Because high dividend stocks typically provide little upside. You know, like the utility stocks, maybe they pay 6%. But if you get 1% or 2% appreciation per year, you'll be lucky. Uh, whereas others pay a 2% dividend and may have a 7 or 8% appreciation. So no right answer. It's just how does it all fit together for you? Now, uh, the average yield on dividends overall has been about 2% a year going historically. So taken together, the increase in inflation expectations, the decline in real yields, both echo and help explain the strong performance of stocks recently. And falling real yields, meanwhile, can boost the economy as the U.S. dollar weakens, which will spur investors to buy riskier assets, a.k.a. stocks, because inflation is causing them to lose the money on their bonds. So, thank you very much for listening. I hope you benefited from some of these words. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 Pacific. So, I hope you have a good, positive week. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. Be sure and listen to Opus 111's Mike Mail every Saturday morning on 920 AM KXLY in Spokane. Stream the show on KXLY920.com or subscribe to this podcast and we'll bring the latest episode to you. Securities offered through KMS Financial Services.